We're going to be studying today Gospel of John chapter 15, verses 6 and 7. Uh, and again, these two verses focus on the issue of fruitfulness. This is a key aspect of our theology. This is what Jesus demands of us. He wants each and every one of us to bear fruit. Uh, and this particular section of Scripture is very much misunderstood. Uh, and there are certain denominations that teach this in a way that I believe is not consistent with uh, all of the gospel. And so we'll talk about that. Because one of the things that we need to do when we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, is to harmonize the verses. Meaning what? When we read a verse, we don't take one verse out of context and build a theology on one verse. Instead, we take a verse, look at who Jesus is speaking to, what are the conditions that it refers to, the time and the place, and what other verses in Scripture relate to that. Because God expects us to harmonize the entire gospel. And so the question for you today to think about is this. Are you useful to Jesus? Here it is. Are you being useful to Jesus? And we're going to talk about that. So if you have your Bibles, Gospel of John chapter 15, uh, two verses, verses 6 and 7. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given to you. So it's a pretty powerful message, pretty straightforward to Jesus, uh, demonstrating that we as the branches must be within the vine. If we want to bear fruit, the only way we're going to bear fruit is to be within the vine of Jesus Christ. You can't go out and do your own thing have your own set of determinations of what you think uh, you need to do to advance the kingdom of God. The only way that you will be able to advance the kingdom of God, to bear the kind of fruit that God demands that we bear, is to be firmly implanted within the vine. And this image here of branches not in the vine is disturbing. And we're going to talk about that and, and talk about uh, the, the appropriate theology of understanding this. But the first thing to understand is this, that you know that going back to the Old Testament, the vine was the typology of Israel. Israel was always depicted as being the vine. And so here it was that God had called Israel to be the vine, uh, effectively to be the missionary, to evangelize God's work. And obviously they failed miserably when Jesus was uh, called and came to this world as the Messiah, they walked off as Jesus walked onto the stage. And so going back to some scripture, you can see what, G what God looks at as what, is he, as what he refers to as dead wood. Turn, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 15. I'm giving you this as a, an historical reference. Ezekiel chapter 15, verse 2. Son of man, how is the wood of a vine better than that of a branch on any of the trees in the forest? Is wood ever taken from it to make anything useful? Do they make pegs from it to hang things on? 
and after it is thrown on the fire as fuel and the fire burns both ends and chars the middle, is it then useful for anything? If it was not useful for anything when it was whole, how much less can it be made into something useful when, when it, the fire has burned it and it is charred? And he's speaking here about Israel, uh, about the vine of Israel. But the point is you get a, an idea, the mindset of God as to how he looks at wood that is not bearing fruit. Everything within God's theology, within the gospel of Christ, refers to bearing fruit. And so, uh, are we, the question for us is, are we uh, just a bunch of leaves? Or are we fruit-bearing branches? And I want you to think about that today as I, as I go through this section of Scripture. Now, one of the things that you will see if you study this section of Scripture is that remaining... Remaining in Christ is the major idea of this section of the gospel, this particular section. Remaining. The word remain occurs eight times in just seven verses. How about that? If you look at verses 4 to verses 10, you will see the word remain come up eight times. And so we can hardly understand a failure to remain in Christ until we know what does remaining mean? What, is, what does Jesus mean, remaining in me? And I will submit to you that remaining in Christ is a decision that you make of the heart and the mind. Meaning what? You decide each day to study the Word, each day to pray, each day to pick up other people's burdens and to be, to be the person who is responsible to lift up other people. A daily walk with God. Remaining is within that step. Um, and, and in that same sense of decision-making, it's a decision-making life where you stay away from things that will take you away from the cross of Jesus. Each of us has these decisions every day. Each of us will face moral dilemmas. And within the grace of God, again, this is a decision-making process. And that decision-making process will allow you to remain uh, because the Holy Spirit has planted you, planted you within the vine of Jesus Christ. Now, as you're planted within the vine of Jesus Christ, uh, I submit to you that you need to remain in that vine, and that process does not take place by accident, but God is expecting you to knowledgeably move forward and to remain in that vine. Now, uh, if you have the outline in front of you, uh, on point three of that outline, you'll see I have bolded something in the last part of that outline. If you had not committed your life to Jesus, this is your time to do so in order to obtain all of the promises that are to follow. Uh, somebody said to me that I often say, well, everybody in this room is saved. Uh, and they somewhat criticized me for that. And I'd say that that was a legitimate criticism. Uh, because I presume that everybody in the room is saved. And so I want to say it today, that if you have any issues that you are not concerned that you have given your heart to Jesus Christ, I'm prepared to stay here today, I'll pray with you, and we'll end that forever. All right? Because everything that I'm about to say applies to those people who are saved. It does not apply to people who are not saved. These promises that come, out, come on are not for people that are unsaved. You cannot bear fruit unless you're saved. 
You cannot. Unless you are in the vine of Jesus Christ, you cannot have fruit in your life. You'll, have, you'll, you'll think that maybe you're doing things that are advancing things in this world. You may be a moral person, all right? Uh, you may be doing charitable acts, but I want to assure you that God doesn't look at those things the same way he does with, for the acts of those of us that are within the vine of Jesus Christ. There's a very big dis- difference. Uh, there's a verse in the Bible where, where uh, Jesus says that your righteousness is like filthy rags before God. I mean, that underscores that. So as we bow in submission to God, and we recognize that nothing that we can do can advance his work, that only within the submissive act of being within Christ, in that vine, being within Christ in that vine, and remaining in that vine, then fruitfulness will continue. Uh, And so this is important for you to understand this. This is the willful choices that you make to stay there. Uh, And part of this will be, as I said, decisions that you will make to help bear other people's burdens. What are you doing to demonstrate that you are within the vine? Are you reaching out to people that need help? Are you praying for people? Are you lifting people up? Uh, And what we're going to see is, as we underscore this and we study this lesson today, is that the key to God is, are we advancing the gospel of Christ? That's the nature of this, of this test. Are, you, are we advancing the gospel of Christ? Now, that's verse 6. Verse 7 makes a third point here, and that is where Jesus says, if we remain in him, then whatever we ask for, he will answer. Now, we've spoken about this issue before. This does not mean, Lord, I need a bigger house. Lord, I want to be on the water. Lord, I'd like a boat. Can I keep going? I mean, think about all these issues that we have in life relating to all of our various wants. God's not really interested in your wants. He's interested in your needs. And this verse really relates to your needs and what God requires from us to advance the gospel of Christ. And what do I mean by that? If you pray to him, Lord, help me to see the gifts that you've given me to help me to have the courage to step out for you, God will answer that prayer. He will answer that prayer. You ask him to bring your children to the cross of Christ, God will answer that prayer. Anything that you say that you ask for that advances the kingdom of God not our personal agenda, but advances the kingdom of God, God will answer those requests. In the meantime, he will give you, without you asking, everything that you need. Can I get an amen on that? All right, that's important. You don't have to ask him. You don't have to ask him for the things you need. He knows what you need. He loves you, and he will be there, and he will cover you and give you those things. So here's the point of these two verses. Many people in this world like the idea of Jesus, but they don't like his teaching. They like Jesus. They like the idea of salvation. But it's these other things that sometimes cause people to say, I don't know, I'm not really, I'm not too keen about that. Uh, And it causes some people to go off and misinterpret Uh, his teaching. And so what I want to say to you is this, that you take Jesus, you take it all. 
You take Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You take him as your Savior and as part of all the teaching that he brings. It's one complete package. And so within what I've said so far, there is still one rather disturbing verse. Verse 6. It appears as a dark possibility. It's problematic. And Jesus speaks of the consequences of not remaining in him. And in this case, Jesus says, quote, If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. On its face, this is a disturbing verse. Uh, and this is a verse that is subject to much interpret- misinterpretation. And I'm going to spend the rest of the day today, the rest of this lesson, making sure that you do not misinterpret this verse. There are many, many denominations that misinterpret this verse. They interpret this verse to be Jesus speaking about salvation. Um, And those people that do not believe in eternal security, and there are a significant number of denominations that do not embrace that, uh, believe that this is a verse where Jesus is saying, if you walk away from me, basically you're going to be burned in hell. Now the first thing I have to say to you is that the greater weight of biblical revelation, the far greater weight of biblical revelation is on the premise that there is eternal security. And I'm going to re- uh, revisit some of those verses so that you have that assurance. Also, I want you to know that, every, that just because you see the idea of burning doesn't mean that every burning is a hellfire burning, okay? The word burning sometimes appears in scriptures irrespective of hell, and I'm going to submit to you that this is one of these things. And so here's the point that I want to say to you. Use your common sense. You understand eternal security, The Holy Spirit has revealed to you that you've been saved. And once you're saved, it's clear that you're within the hand of God. Jesus has told us nothing can take us out of his hand. Uh, God has told us nothing can take us out of his hand. And so now you're going to take this verse out of isolation, and you're going to throw all those other verses out to say, yeah, but look at this verse. And I would say to you that you are slandering and blaspheming God if that's how you interpret this verse. Let's be careful uh, as to how we reinterpret verses. Let's look at the harmony of the gospel. Let's look at at a variety of verses when we come to terms with this. Um, Interestingly, those people who view that, have that view of this verse, will say the following. And these are people that come out of what we call the Armenian school of theology. It's not for the country of Armenia. It's for a theologian, Joseph Armenia, who, who uh, effectively wrote about this theology. Uh, and this, is, this becomes a work-based theology. You understand? That is, you've worked your way up into salvation, and now you work your way out of salvation. Well, here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. If your works didn't get you into the hand of God, had nothing to do with God saving you, as we know is true. What makes you think that you can work your way out of God's hand? You cannot. What they will say is the following, well, yes, but you could jump out of the hand of God. Where are we getting these things? 
You see how we disabuse people, uh, really, of what I call false theology, and then we wonder why people are not having triumphant Christian lives. What kind of life can you have if you get up in the morning and you're just waiting for that misstep, that trip, oh, no, I'm going to hell. Oh, Lord, you think you think God treats you like that? Honestly, folks, wake up and smell the flowers. Look at some of these verses. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. This is what I'm calling harmonizing the gospel. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Here is Paul writing to the church of Philippi. Verse 3, we'll start with that. I thank my God every time I remember you. This is Paul. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Carry it on until completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. There's no textual inference there that it won't be continued to the end. If anything, the textual clarity is that it will continue to the end, that it will not be cut off, that he will be there with you, that God will be there with you. I'm confident. What kind of confidence can you have if you said, I know you're okay today, but mm, tomorrow, you know, who knows, you know, you may be in hell. I mean, what kind of a gospel is that, really? Is that the kind of gospel you want to bring to people in this world? I want you also now to take a look at Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in the Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 37. As you see, Paul, this great, great apostle, having this this vision of Jesus and understanding uh, what Jesus is about. And remember this, that we know that Paul, from the moment that he got saved, went out into the Saudi Arabian desert for about two years, and the gospel of Jesus Christ was poured into him through the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means most likely that Jesus taught Paul one-on-one about his gospel. That's why this man could write two-thirds of the New Testament. Think about it. Two-thirds of the New Testament is going to come from this man, uh, this former heretic uh, who who slandered and killed and murdered uh, the Jewish people because he didn't understand uh, what God's will was in his life. Look what he says in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Just stop and listen to that. We are more than conquerors. What kind of conqueror is it that today is within the hand of God and that tomorrow is out in the street lost? More than conquerors. For I am convinced, and this is the guy who went one-on-one with Jesus, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the congregation said, Amen. You got that right. That should be 
on your refrigerator. All right? That should be on your refrigerator. And if your refrigerator is not big enough, get a bigger refrigerator. All right? Because there is nothing in Scripture that says it better than that. Nothing will separate us. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute, John. What about verse 6 and 7, uh, the branches and the fire? How can you read those verses when I, read, when I just gave you the verses that told you nothing can separate us? Nothing. No decision. No power. No principality. No stupid move. No error. No sin that you did that once you are within with the hand of God and Jesus Christ, and truly saved. And by the way, I'm talking about truly saved. Let's get that fact done. Meaning a salvation that's not just a lip salvation, but a heart salvation. Fully submitting and giving yourself to Jesus Christ. Nothing, no one, no circumstance will separate us. And I, Am I making my case? I would hope so. Now, for us to read verses 6 and 7, uh, in a way that the Armenians would have us read us, we would have to throw these verses out. We would also have to throw out some of the other verses in the Gospel of John in which Jesus made it quite clear about eternal security. Turn to John chapter 10. And I'm just giving you some of them. I could sit here and go all day on this. John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Underline that. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So first of all, if you have any doubts that Jesus Christ is God, I give you exhibit A. You know we spent all year talking about all the ways that Jesus has made it crystal clear he is equal with the Father. But now he's telling you that no one, his sheep know his voice and he knows his sheep, meaning those who are committed to him, those who have given their lives to him, they are in his hand and no one is going to take them out of his hand. And not only that, but at the same time, they are within the hand of God, the Father, and no one is going to take them out of the hand of God, the Father. And so in the face of these clear verses, to read verses 6 and 7 in any way as to mean that those verses relate to salvation is absolutely improper and wrong. Instead, those verses... Verse 6 relates to fruitfulness. Now, when you understand what I've just said, it makes, it makes so much more sense. Because as you go back and you read verse 6 now in the light of a branch that is not bearing fruit, now you read it, verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch. He's not saying a son, a daughter, He's saying, like a branch. He is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Why? Because it is not within the vine. Because that branch is not bearing fruit. That everything within the economy of God relates 
to bearing fruit. If we do not bear fruit for God, we are of no use to God. You're not advancing the kingdom of God. Are you saved? Yes, but you're not advancing the kingdom of God. Have you wondered when you look at certain people at times and you see them and you don't see really uh, the evidence of, of Christ in their lives uh, and maybe they'll tell you that they're a Christian and I'm, it's not for you to be a fruit inspector, by the way. <laughs> Let me say that right now. You people are not in fruit inspectors. Your job's not to go around yes, yet, or no, in, out, in, in, mm, I'm not sure. You understand? Your job is to present the gospel and then let Jesus convict people. But the point of this is, is that there are people who could be, in fact, Christians who are bearing no fruit, zero fruit. They've come to Christ. It's like they walked, got in. They walked the narrow road. As soon as they got through the gate, they put a chair down. They said, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. God repudiates that, folks. Okay? God repudiates that. That's, that's not what God wants from you. God demands that we bear fruit. Uh, and we're going to talk about the consequences of this. Uh, and so here he is saying, it's like a branch thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. Meaning, worthless. Just like I gave you that citation in Ezekiel that God referred to Israel. Worthless. Not as it relates to salvation. Salvation is separate and apart. But now, these verses relates relate clearly to fruitfulness. And this is important that you understand this. Now, there's a good set of verses that underscore this meaning. And again, it comes from our brother Paul, who underscores this. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9. Actually, we'll start with verse 8. Do you like when I do that? The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be a rewarded according to his own labor. Now, I want you to underline reward, because what I'm going to demonstrate to you now is that as you interpret these verses, 6 and 7, these verses talk about fruitfulness, and ultimately, fruitfulness will be determined by God when we get to heaven, and it will be rewarded by God based on what his determination is of what we have done here to advance the gospel. Now, you may not have heard this before or heard it referenced, but here's the deal, folks. Heaven, once for salvation, we're all the same. But in terms of positions in heaven and rewards in heaven, heaven is a meritocracy. Meaning what? And we know this because Jesus said it even as it related to the apostles. He looks at your work here in this world? Have you advanced the gospel? Have you been the kind of Christian that, have brought, that has brought other people to Christ? This is what he's looking for. He's not interested in what kind of a business you held or what kind of a high-profile person you were or how famous you became. He doesn't care about any of that. He cares in a single-minded way. Is, are you advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what he cares about. That's what the test is. And that's what all these verses that I just gave you relate to. The branch that is not advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ is dead. It has no fruit. God is not interested in it. But look at Paul when he says this here. 
as we re rewarded for his own labor. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. What does that mean? It means that God has called this man as an apostle to preach to the Corinthian church and to lay out and put down the Christian foundation for that church. But then there are other workers that come in. This God's thing doesn't just one person. It's not one monopoly. God has given all of us here gifts in some way that he expects us to use. And so here he's referencing now all those other gifts after the foundation has been built by an expert builder, which ultimately is Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. This is the explanation of verse 6 in the Gospel of John, chapter 15. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Meaning what? I'm not interested in your philosophical musings. All right? In your charitable contacts or, or your elevation of the human spirit. Because that's, that's preaching on foundations that do not relate to Jesus Christ. The only thing that matters if you want to build a foundation and build a building is what relates to Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as escaping through the flames. Now, I don't know about you, but when I grew up, this was one of those verses that was problematic for me. I never told my father about that. I never told him really that I, what the heck is this talking about here? But it was a, a bit of a disturbing set of verses. Building up on a foundation, uh, and then the flames will come and will destroy, uh, and then the person who built ultimately will lose everything, but, but he himself will be saved. Well, it's only when you look at Gospel of John 15, verses 6 and 7, that you have clarity now as to really what's going on here. And that's how you need to compare and harmonize these verses. Because here's the thing. God is saying to you, in your fruitfulness, are you building with gold and silver and costly gems? Jesus. Or are you building with hay and straw and wood? You. Do you see the difference? One is of a temporal quality. One is of an eternal quality. And so what happens? There will be a day when God will test. God will test. He tests all of us. And in that day of tests, whenever it comes, the heat will come in the, in the cauldron of God's way, 
a fire will come, and whatever has not been built for eternal purposes, whatever has been built because you thought it was good, it was in your will, it was not in the submissive will of God, will be destroyed. But whatever is built based on God's word, the gold, the silver, the precious gems, those eternal qualities, those things advancing the kingdom of God, and now your mental acuity, not that, but rather God's things. When you do that, when you advance the things of God and you bear fruit and gold, silver and gems is the evidence of the fruit of God, we're speaking on a higher level, then those things will be saved and those rewards will be saved as opposed to the wood, the straw, and the hay which will be destroyed. And what happens if, if in fact, that's all that we had? What happens if, in fact, our life is devoted to wood, hay, and straw? Or your things, your works, your possessions, yourself, anything that related to you, your desires, instead of the desires of God. Yes, you're saved, but that's what you devoted your life to. Look what it says in the end, verse 15. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. What a perfect explanation, folks, of what we're talking about in verse 6 here in the Gospel of John. The clarity of this, to me, is so, is so straightforward. And so many people have been mistaught on this. There are churches all over the world in which people read this and they go, hey, you see what happens? You see what happens? You think you're within the vine of Jesus Christ, but you're, you know, all of a sudden God could pull you out and you're in, the, in hellfire. As if you could work your way once, in fact, you've given God your life. Okay? And I'm talking about true, true submission to God here. Understanding? And that's between us and God. That's not for us to become a fruit inspector. So this is important. This is important uh, statement to understand this, this aspect of how God teaches. Now, here's the point on this. Heaven, as it relates to meritocracy, as it relates to fruitfulness, God judges us. You're going to be saved if you give your heart to Jesus Christ, and you're saved. But we know that in some ways, God has something prepared for us when we get to the other side. We don't know it with full clarity, but it seems as if there, are, there will be degrees of responsibility when we get to heaven. God told his disciples, the apostles, that when they get, because they, they said, Lord, we've given up everything for you. We've walked away from families, from homes, from businesses to follow you. And Jesus said, fear not, you will be greatly rewarded. Each one of you will be in charge of ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. What does that mean? It means that God recognizes what the apostles did, and there is a reward commensurate for what they did in advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just in, the, in advancing the gospel that they walked with Jesus, but also in helping to write the, uh, uh, the uh, New Testament. I want you to look, for, the, for example, at a few verses, starting with Matthew chapter 5 because I want to prove my point to you about this issue relating to rewards. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward, underline that, in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets uh, who were before you. Great is your reward. Not great that you will be saved. The the salvation is presumed here. He's speaking to people who are presumed. But great is your reward. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus speaking again. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness, quote, unquote, before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. You see how God is basically talking to you about, about your, your conduct in remaining in the vine, the conscious decisions that you need to make about being in the vine, about how to equate fruitfulness. Fruitfulness here is not about public displays. Oh, yes, look at me. I'm so religious. Oh, this church is so blessed to have me here. Oh, what would it do if I wasn't here? It would collapse. You understand this? Uh, The whole public uh, explanation and and demonstration of of what your religiosity is, God repudiates it. He's not interested in your public posture. All right? Not at all. You will, if you do that, you will have no reward. No reward in heaven. It doesn't mean you're not going to be saved, but you're not going to have a reward for that kind of conduct. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues, and on the streets, to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing uh, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Are you picking up a pattern? God is looking to the evidence of the fruit in your life. And he's not interested in leaves. He's not interested in public demonstrations. He's interested in true piety and submission. And based on that, he will reward you in heaven. I can't tell you how. It's not about getting a bigger house. Not about getting a better location on the river. Not about getting higher up in that great condominium in the sky. It's about getting more responsibility. Heaven is about a place where God is in charge and there will be degrees of governance and responsibility and there will be joy in heaven predicated on those kinds of things. I have a few other verses. Verse, Matthew chapter 6, continuing. Verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. Are you picking up a pattern here? Are you picking up a pattern how God can't stand hypocrisy? That God can't stand fakery? That God can't stand public uh, visions or protestations of piousness? That God doesn't want to see that? Instead, he wants to see a submissive person, 
a humble person. You see this. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay? That's right, openly. You understand that? And so here's the point of what I want to make as I, as I string these verses together and hopefully overwhelm you with my side of, of, of thinking on this. And that is this. God weighs your fruitfulness. And he will reward your fruitfulness. That reward will be partially here in this world and it will be more rewarded in the world to come. All right? We don't do this, and we don't do any of this. And let me clarify this. We don't do this for the rewards. Because if you say, oh, yeah, I think I'll go and I'll visit the hospital today because you know what? I'll probably pick up 10 or 15 points on my ledger over there in heaven. I need to do it because last week was a bad week. Man, if you don't, we don't think like that. You understand? We don't think like that. Instead, we think, I love God. I love Jesus. He saved me. What can I do to advance his will? How can I bring more people to Christ? What do I need to do to see it? And you see this over and over and over again, that this is the economy of God. That is why you need to relate to those verses in Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 6 to 7, as fruitfulness. And rewarding, not salvation. Is that crystal clear? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for the lesson that you've given us. Lord, I thank you that the Holy Spirit has opened our mind to your verses, to your will, Lord. I ask you that it, these, these lessons resonate in our heart this week as we grow closer to you in every possible way, Lord as we have a greater desire to bear fruit for you, Father, as we want to make a conscious decision to remain in the vine through the Holy Spirit, that we want to be part of you and have every part of our body be devoted to serving you in every way. Lord, I, I ask you to bless our people and to bring them closer to the cross as they understand exactly what you want us to do in terms of the life we are to live. Bless our people. Protect them this week and bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you all.